on a baptism Sunday. This one about life and death and transformations on mountains. But there is something powerful and compelling, I think, for us here. And so, friends, let us see if we might find it. Let us begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Wendell Berry, well-known author, poet, wrote once, It may be that when we no longer know what we have to do, we have come to our real work, and that when we no longer know which way we have to go, we have come to our real journey. In high school, my physics teacher once introduced to the class what I have since learned is a classic riddle. I'd like to share it with you, and in fact, this is going to be a little bit of an interactive section, so hear the riddle, and if you know the answer, I'm going to be asking for it in a minute. So here's how the riddle goes. There is a traveler who walked once a mile due south, turned and walked a mile due east, and then turned again and walked a mile north, only to find themselves back where they had started, and while they were there, they saw a bear. What color was the bear? Friends, does anyone know what color the bear was? White. Absolutely right. I love this riddle, and it stumped me. It stumped me when I first heard it, because at first glance, there's absolutely no information here about the bear. None whatsoever. It's just sort of tacked on to the end, as if you're just supposed to pull it out of thin air. But it turns out we can know something about the bear, because we can know something about where the traveler is, and that's a helpful clue. But it's kind of a riddle in that on its own, because the traveler walked what should have been three sides of a square, a mile south, east, and north. And so they should have ended up like a mile away from where they started. And so for this journey to end where it began, it would have had to be three sides of a triangle, which isn't how cardinal directions work, except if you're at the North Pole. See, if you're at the North Pole, a mile south, east, and north takes you back to where you started, and if you're at the North Pole, then the bear is going to be white, and the riddle is solved. Now, incidentally, for those who are really excited by riddles and puzzles, there's actually an infinite number of places on the globe where this same journey can begin and end in the same spot, but all the rest of those are a very long distance away from the North Pole, and so I'm going to let you sort that out on your own if you're so inclined, or we can talk about it later. We're going to try not to go too much into math and science this morning, but I can't quite help myself. What I am interested in is recognizing how complicated navigation gets when we find ourselves in these outlier locations, places of transformation where north and south can suddenly change direction, places where the normal rules and normal tools no longer function, and places where it can seem impossible to know which way to go. The riddles and the oddities of navigation at the North Pole uh, intrigued my friends and I in high school, and so we spent some time, as I recall, debating how a traveler trying to get to the North Pole by compass would know if they made it. What would the compass do at the North Pole when you arrived? This, incidentally, should tell you everything you need to know about what I and my friends were like in high school. And so we talked about this. Would the compass spin meaninglessly around when you got to the North Pole, or would it just sit there in the same direction it was when you started approaching the pole? And what we eventually decided is that it would be best simply to carry a three-dimensional compass so that when you reach the North Pole, the needle would simply point directly down to the spot that you were on, the northernmost point you could travel. It seemed like a very elegant 
solution. And we were absolutely correct, and also we were off by about 1,200 miles. Because we had forgotten that a compass is directed by the Earth's magnetic field. And the Earth's magnetic field is created by molten iron swirling around in the uppermost layer of the Earth's crust. And so that means that the magnetic North Pole is actually a mobile thing and not in, tied in any way, shape, or form to the top of the globe, the geographic North Pole. And so, in fact, the magnetic North Pole is a thousand miles away in a northern region, northern part of Canada. And not only that, it's moving. Every year it shifts like 34 some miles. And in fact, it can wander back and forth over a span of miles in a single day. And this doesn't make much of a difference to anyone. And I may have lost some of you already. Just most compass navigation down here, you just assume north is north and that's fine. But it is important. It is important if you are close to the top of the globe and you're trying to do something with any amount of accuracy. If you're trying to reach the top of the globe, it's very important to know because otherwise it would be all too easy for the explorer trying to reach the North Pole to spend the whole of the rest of their life wandering around Canada, chasing after an elusive approximation of their final destination. When in actuality, the only way to get to the true North Pole would be to step away from what the compass told them and to walk in a direction the compass swore to them was south. And so Wendell Berry reminds us it may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. In the center of our scripture today, we find Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, on the peak of a mountain and very firmly planted in one of these outlier locations, a place where normal tools and normal rules no longer function and where going north just might require walking south. This is a turning point in Matthew's gospel, the hinge that turns everything to point towards Jerusalem, that city where prophets go to die and where Jesus is going to die. But the disciples, and Peter especially, seem unwilling to accept this fate. See, Jesus has told them that they need to follow him, and they need to accept that they are walking towards the same thing and bearing the same cross. And they're not sure that they're ready to accept this. And so in a gospel, when there aren't very many moments of silence, when we move from one passage to the next as if it was all happening immediately, Matthew tells us here that nothing happened for six days before Jesus then brought his three closest companions to the top of this high mountain. Now, the six days could be symbolically significant. It could be the reminder of the six days that Moses spent talking with God on a mountain, or the six days of creation leading to a final day of rest. Or it could have just been six days of uncomfortable tension when Jesus told the disciples they had to get ready to die and they weren't sure that they wanted to. And so they had to grapple with this idea that Jesus is heading in a very different direction than the one that they thought they were going in. And we're reminded of this, perhaps at the top of the mountain, 
when Jesus suddenly becomes a beacon of heavenly light, robed in the purest white fabric, and he's joined by the famous prophets Moses and Elijah. And it was everything the disciples had been waiting for, the confirmation of who Jesus was, that he was Messiah and Lord, fulfillment of the scriptures, ruler of the kingdom of heaven, sovereign over all creation. In that moment, it was clear that this Jesus of Nazareth was God Almighty, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, full of majesty and glory. And Peter is so sure that they have arrived that he asks if he and the other two disciples might build shrines or houses for these three figures so that maybe they could stay there for a while. Because what could this be but the end of the journey? Everything Peter had used to navigate this path, every hope and dream he had carried to guide him was now pointing down at his feet, marking this as the place he had been searching for. He was ready to stay for a while or forever. But then there was a cloud that engulfed them. Everything disappeared, and a voice from the heavens spoke. This is my son, whom I dearly love. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. There are words that echo back to the beginning of the gospel when Jesus was baptized. It was a welcome and an embrace of who Jesus was that sent him off on this journey and into this ministry with one addition. Here, listen to him. They had moved or were moving from the more straightforward path to a difficult one. And so the voice spoke, listen to him. And what were they to listen to, if not those words that were still ringing in their ears six-some days later? All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. These three disciples had been given a glimpse of something real and something true, something that absolutely was what they were looking for. And Jesus had also said then, I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see the human one, the Son of Man, coming in his kingdom. Peter, James, and John had seen it. They were there. They caught a glimpse of Jesus in his glory, reigning over his eternal kingdom. And then it was gone. And that's how it happens sometimes. We catch a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven in strange and wonderful ways, in moments of powerful worship, in the transformation of lives, when we see young and old learning and growing together, when we feed the hungry or we are fed, when we love or when we are loved, when we have the chance to welcome in baptism a new child of God into the family of God. And so we catch glimpses of the kingdom. But every glimpse seems to be an encouragement and not an endpoint. The only way to the kingdom in all of its fullness, the way to hang on to the kingdom and to keep it for good, the way to get a lifetime in the kingdom and not just a glimpse, was not to stay on the mountain, but to head back down. The only way to hang on to the kingdom was to walk away from the place that they got a glimpse of it. The only way to save a life is to lose it. It makes no more sense than if Jesus were to have said, finders, weepers, losers, keepers. It feels strange, as if the only way to travel north 
is to head in the direction the compass says is south. And that's where Jesus seems to be going. And so the disciples were afraid. Because of course they were afraid. And, and not just because of the heavenly encounter, though that surely had to be disconcerting. But because that was their reminder that they could not avoid what Jesus had asked of them. That they had to pick up their cross and bear it. They had to let go of everything that was to see what it might become. They had to walk away from the place they had first seen the kingdom to see where else it could show up. It has been said that to love someone is to attend a thousand funerals for the person they used to be. This might be what Jesus is imploring his disciples to do. So bearing a cross isn't about putting up with minor inconveniences in life, and it certainly isn't about staying put when something isn't right, abuse or slavery or oppression. Those sorts of things aren't the crosses Jesus has for us to bear. But the burden of letting go of what is for the sake of what could be is a cross to bear. The burden of letting go of what's good for what could be better is a cross to bear. The burden of letting go of our comfort for the challenge of change is a cross to bear. One commentator writing on this said that comforting someone isn't that hard. You just give them a little more of what they already had and then tell them it'll be all right. But freedom is different. Freedom requires that they see that what they have isn't life-giving in the first place. And so Jesus is inviting his disciples to let go of what they have, to see the ways that it isn't life-giving, to see the path they might need to walk to find something that is, to let go of the place where something wonderful happens, to see where else it might break through. Methodist churches perhaps know this particularly well. We have built into our structure times of change and transition when pastors move and new ones come. But every church knows it. Leaders come and leaders go. Times come and times go. And so those places that we saw the glimpse of the kingdom of God, those moments that were so profound and so powerful were true and good glimpses of God shining through and yet the way to hang on to them is not to try to recreate them, to plant ourselves in the mountain and never leave, but to walk down the mountainside, to head south, to go north, so that instead of wandering around searching for what was, we can find what will be. The only way to save a life is to lose it. And it might be said that the only way to save a church is to lose the church, or at least or at least lose the church as it was for the sake of the one that it will be. It might even be said that to save a church, you've got to give everything away. And it's those who should know this best, who stand closest to the places where this message is told again and again that sometimes need to be told it one more time or two or three. Just last month, we had a church council meeting, that top body of leaders of our church. We gather about once a month to talk about the things that we need to do to lead the church from this month into the next, or sometimes this year into the next. And I had a job at this last month's meeting, which was that I needed to bring a request 
from one of the ministries that we have partnered with, the GEM Ministries through the Boone family and their ministry with Zimbabwe, a particular village in Zimbabwe that we have supported over the years financially so that they have places to live and food to eat, stability in their community. And so it was my job to bring this because I happened to be in the office when they called and it wasn't my decision to make, so I brought it and knew that I needed to say something about the financial reality that this request was coming in. We're not sitting on piles of money. In fact, we've dug a little bit in the different direction. And so maybe this request for support isn't something we can do right now. Maybe we need to hang on to what we have so we can keep it a little bit longer. Sometimes those who sit closest to where this message is heard need to hear it more often. And so it was to my joy and my delight and to my surprise that I was the, seemed to be the only one at the table who had these reservations and everyone else said, no, this is what the church does. This is what we do as a church. We don't look at what we need to hang on to so we can save it. We look at what we can give away to help someone else to transform lives. And so this request, which was for a student looking to go to school for three years to be trained for a job to transform her life and her family and her community. They said, this is what we have to do. Forget what we have or what we don't have. Friends, we might find more in the giving away than in the holding on to. I had forgotten this and forgotten it a thousand times over my whole life. But sometimes to save a life, you have to lose your life. Sometimes to save what you have, you have to give away what you have. Sometimes the way you get north is by walking south. And so we had all these plans about how we were going to uh, present this to the congregation. It's coming up next week. We're going to talk about it throughout Lent. We're going to have George here to tell us about this student that we'd like to support. But as I was working through this sermon, it was too perfect a moment, at least for me, that I couldn't hold on to it and not share it. Because what a wonderful reminder it was that this is who this church is. We are people who know what it is to stand in moments of change and to let go of what is for the sake of what we can do. To let go of what is for the sake of seeing what God can do through us. To let go of what is for the sake of trusting God to support us. Because we can't do the ministry we want to do and we need to do if we're hanging on to what was. And so we head south and down the mountain and discover that God is there in the valleys, healing and teaching and suffering and dying and being resurrected. It feels like the wrong way, like an impossible way, and yet it is the only way to follow the one who is the way. Friends, it is a joy to be a part of a church that knows so well the path that God has laid for us to walk, however difficult and even impossible it may seem. May we be a people that continue on that path. Thanks be to God. Friends, I invite us to continue now in worship.